You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of the Fifth Gospel from the Akashic Record, a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner. This is Lecture 10, given in Berlin on the 13th of January, 1914. It seems to me that by considering the Fifth Gospel, as I call it, we may have been able to gain a clearer picture of human evolution on earth and the influence of the mystery of Golgotha. On earlier occasions, we used a number of approaches to gain an idea of what happened, especially at the baptism by John in the Jordan. We also considered how the Christ Spirit united with the individual we call Jesus of Nazareth, using this aspect in particular to establish the vital importance of the Golgotha event for human evolution. In these lectures we have been considering the history of Jesus of Nazareth's younger years as it can be established by means of spiritual science. We have seen how the individual we call Jesus of Nazareth came to John the Baptist when the time had come for the Christ Spirit to take possession. Let us now take everything we have gained from this very real insight into the fifth gospel and seek better understanding of events connected with the mystery of Golgotha. Let us, today, turn the inner eye to the individual who is usually called the forerunner, John the Baptist, and some of the things connected with his mission. To understand John the Baptist and the relationship between him and Christ Jesus, which is also mentioned in other Gospels, especially the Gospel of John, we need to consider John's spiritual background. It goes without saying that this was the world of the ancient Hebrew culture. Let us consider its particular nature. Ancient Hebrew culture did have a special mission in human evolution. Let us remember that in the terms of our spiritual science, we consider earth evolution to have followed out of the Saturn, Sun and Moon evolutions and that during earth evolution the human eye has been added to the physical, ether, and astral bodies, which developed in those earlier stages of evolution. The capital I could not, of course, be there in an instant. It takes the whole of earth evolution to develop it to the point where humanity can evolve in accord with the progress of eternity. If we take this view, the earth must indeed be seen as the arena for development of the human eye within the cosmos. In ancient Hebrew teaching, Yahweh or Jehovah was the spirit in the higher hierarchies under whose influence man put himself. If we consider the biblical story of creation, I tried to show the key situations in a course of lectures on Genesis in Munich in 1910. It shows very clearly that seven spirits from the higher hierarchies developed until Yahweh or Jehovah emerged from among them. 
We might say that just as the human organism as a whole is organized with reference to the head, so the seven Elohim became organized and came to special development in one of them, Yahweh or Jehovah, who became the spirit to govern earth evolution. This was recognized in ancient Hebrew teaching. Yahweh or Jehovah was the one among the higher hierarchies to whom human beings had to relate in order to develop the I. The development of ancient Judaism was indeed a special stage in the evolution of the human I. Within that Hebrew culture, the influence of Yahweh or Jehovah was felt to be such that I could gradually awaken because of the w- that the I could gradually awaken because of the way people felt toward that spirit. What was the nature of this Yahweh or Jehovah? It is a spirit we have to see as closely bound up with earth evolution. It was the Lord, the regent of earth evolution, as it were, or better, the figure whom the Hebrews of old saw to be such. We can see that the whole of ancient Judaism was organized in such a way that Yahweh or Jehovah would be seen as the God of the earth. In the thinking of the ancient Hebrews, the earth would be governed by such a divine spirit in every aspect, and anyone wanting to be aware of his true relationship to the universe through the earth would have to consider first and foremost the earth God, Yahweh or Jehovah. Right at the beginning of the book of Genesis, we are told that Yahweh made man from the earth's substance. In the religious systems that existed all around the ancient Hebrew people, the elements in which their gods were venerated were always something that did not come from the earth, but came in from outside. This can be verified in detail. The ancient Hebrews saw the elements in which their god Yahweh or Jehovah was to be venerated in everything that happened on the earth through the earth. Some of the other nations looked up to the starry heavens, to the stars and their movements. Theirs was an astral religion. Others again noted how the elements came to expression in lightning and thunder. They would ask themselves, how do the divine spirits proclaim themselves in the language of lightning and thunder, cloud formations, and so on? The nations living in the areas around the Hebrew people thus looked for their religious symbols in the stars and in the atmosphere above the earth. These were there to tell them how they related to something that was beyond this world. Today not enough attention is given to the fact that it was characteristic of the ancient Hebrews to see themselves as entirely connected with the earth, and indeed with elements coming from inside the earth. This connection with elements coming from the earth itself is shown in detail. We are told that they would follow a cloud or a pillar of fire on their journeys. They, quote, followed a pillar of fire, close quote, of the kind that could be brought about by means of earth forces. In some volcanic parts of Italy, you only have to ignite a piece of paper and pass it along fissures in the ground, and columns of smoke will immediately arise because the earth forces follow the warm air.
we have to visualize the pillar of fire that the Jews were following as created by inner earth forces. Again, the pillar of water or mist should not be imagined as due to atmospheric forces, but as generated from the desert below. The signs for Yahweh or Jehovah in ancient Hebrew times were connected with earth processes, and we have to look for the origin of the flood in the forces that pulse in the earth, caused not by cosmic conditions from outside, but by earthly conditions. The ancient Hebrews protest against all surrounding nations, took the form of giving recognition to the God of the earth. They felt that everything coming from above, coming to the earth from outside, had not advanced to the task of creating the earth and had remained at the moon stage of creation. It all had to do with the influence of the serpent on earth, the influence of Lucifer who had remained at the moon stage of evolution. We can characterize the protest of the ancient Hebrews against surrounding religions by saying that the others felt to rise to the divine we have to leave the earth aside and go out into the cosmos. We must venerate all that is brought about in the cosmos or comes into the earth's atmosphere from the cosmos. The ancient Hebrews would say, however, we do not venerate anything coming from above, being brought about by forces outside the earth. The true God is with the earth. This is not always fully recognized when words like God or Spirit are used today, and people looking back to old times feel that these words must have had the same meaning in antiquity. Today, under the influence of almost 2,000 years of Christian evolution, Western humanity is, quite rightly, looking upward again. But it would be wrong to think that the ancient Hebrews did the same. They would say, the mission Yahweh intended for the earth has been disrupted by the God who came from outside, the God whose symbol is the serpent in paradise. The Jews had, of course, adopted much from neighboring nations, and we can understand why they in particular adopted so much. Their religion was really the most awkward and tricky in the whole of antiquity, which people find difficult to believe today. For them, Yahweh or Jehovah was an earth god in the sense I have just shown, which of course is not to say that Yahweh, though an earth god, did not also act within the moon forces of the earth, as I have shown in Title Occult Science, also known as esoteric science, and may also be seen as a moon god. This is not what matters to us at the moment, however. The most exposed religion among peoples on earth at the time was the faith of the ancient Jews. Even today, people do not think it is, it is possible to look to the center of the earth rather than up into the heavens when speaking of the God we turn to first and who to us is the highest. The Jews, too, felt this need to look up, especially when seeing that all the nations around them were venerating something that came from outside the earth. The big difference between occult Jewish teaching and anything outside it was that this teaching made it very clear. The forces we have to consider come from the earth.
even if they go as far as the moon, and it is a temptation to look to other forces. Those other forces come to expression in concentrated form in the symbol of the serpent. The ancient Hebrews thus taught some of the things we find again today in our spiritual scientific approach. For the reasons I have just given, however, the ancient Hebrews were increasingly losing touch with the old teaching, especially at the time when the mystery of Golgotha was approaching. Then came a man who felt it was his mission to emphasize the special quality of the Jewish people. This was John the Baptist. Above all, he felt called upon to point out where the strength of the Jewish people lay, which is something we have just been considering. Seeing the way Jewish religion was going all around him, he clothed his feelings in tremendous significant words. He would say, for instance, quote, You call yourselves Abraham's children. If you were, you ought to know that your God, who was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God Yahweh or Jehovah, is connected with the earth and gave expression to this by forming the first human being from a clod of earth. But in your hearts you are no longer Abraham's children. You are the generation who look up to the powers that are above. You have fallen victim to something that rightly bears the symbol of the serpent. You are a generation of vipers. It is deeply significant in many ways, in many different ways, that John the Baptist used these words. I have spoken of this before from different points of view. The words as we read them in the Bible, what do they really mean? If only people would admit more freely to themselves that they read rather badly today. How do people generally take the words, you generation of vipers, that we read in the Bible? They imagine that John was roundly abusing the people when he called them a generation of vipers. That certainly would not have been polite. Nor would it serve any real purpose to start by abusing people when you want to speak to their hearts and souls. We do not really get a true picture of John if we say that was his divine wrath. Anyone can be abusive, but that is not the point. The whole significance of what John wanted to draw to the attention of the people around him was, quote, you no longer know the nature of Yahweh's mission. Addressing yourselves to forces outside the earth rather than forces inside the earth, you are not Abraham's children, for you venerate what the serpent has brought. This makes you the offspring of the people around you who may venerate their gods under all kinds of names, but are actually referring to the element made known to you as the serpent. Let us enter into the heart and mind of John the Baptist. He no doubt had his reasons for addressing people in this way. At this point I am not speaking on the basis of the fifth gospel, for there we have not yet reached the figure of John the Baptist, but on the basis of what can be realized in other ways. John the Baptist, no doubt, had his reasons for addressing the people who came to him by the river Jordan as if he believed them to have adopted pagan customs. Indeed, even the name he was given by those who came meant something he did not wish to hear at that particular time. The ancient teachings in the regions 
where John the Baptist said those words were more or less as follows. Quote, In the beginnings of human evolution, a time came when man and the higher animals received from the Yahweh origin the ability to breathe air. But because of Lucifer's deed, the breathing of air became bad. Only the fishes, animals that did not breathe air, remained good, for they continued at the original stage of evolution, as it were. And so people would come to the Jordan, as Jews still do today in some areas. And at a certain time of the year, they would stand at the water's edge and shake out their garments, in the belief that they were casting their sins to the innocent fishes which would then have to bear them. Customs like these were connected with the surrounding pagan beliefs. John saw them in the people, of whom he said, You know more of the serpent than of Yahweh. You are therefore wrong to call yourselves children of Abraham, the man destined to be your forefather. I tell you, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob might go back to his original mission, and from these stones, meaning from the earth, create a race of people who would understand him better than you do. The original of this passage, where the Bible says, From these stones God has the power to raise up children unto Abraham, contains many words with double meaning. They are deliberately ambiguous, so that people may realize these things to have profound meaning. We shall only fully understand them if we consider what I have been saying in connection with Paul's mission. I have spoken of Paul's mission on a number of occasions. Today I shall present the aspect that may have a bearing on our present goals. How could it be that Paul, who had not been prepared to accept the significance of the mystery of Golgotha in the light of anything he learned in Jerusalem, became fully convinced of what he called the resurrection of the Christ by the Damascus event? First, we will have to take a look at the way Paul was prepared for the Damascus event. Paul had received his training in the Jewish school of prophets. He knew exactly that up to a certain point in human evolution, salvation would depend on holding fast to the God of the earth and on knowing how Yahweh's mission was connected with the earth. A time would have to come, however, and Paul knew this when heavenly things coming into the earth from conditions existing outside it would be important. We have to realize that before the Christ took on his mission for the earth at the mystery of Golgotha, he had a mission in cosmic regions, living in regions beyond this earth. Details of this may be found in the lectures I recently gave in Leipzig. If we trace the earlier situations outside the earth, we find that the Christ initially worked in realms beyond this earth and then gradually came closer and closer to the earth, finally entering into the earth's aura through the body of Jesus of Nazareth. Paul knew that this moment would come, but before Damascus he did not see the Christ has come in the earth's aura. He was prepared for it, however, and does in fact tell us he was prepared. Read the twelfth chapter of the second letter of the Corinthians. Quote, 1. It is not expedient for me, doubtless, to glory. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord, 
Two, I knew a man in Christ above fourteen years ago, whether in the body I cannot tell, or whether out of the body I cannot tell, God knows. This man was caught up to the third heaven. Number three, and I know the same man, parenthesis, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. God knows. Close parenthesis. Number four, who was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words, which no man can utter. Number five, of such a one will I glory, yet of myself I will not glory, but in my infirmities. Close quote. What was Paul saying? No less than that, fourteen years earlier, considering the chronology, we would thus have to assume him to have had this experience about six years after the Golgotha event, he was able to ascend to the realm of spirit through clairvoyance. This means, he assures us, that a human being lives in him, and of this alone will he glory, not the physical human being, who is indeed able to look up into the worlds of the spirit. During that experience he realized, what did you see when you looked up into the worlds of the spirit before? You saw the Christ, who was then still in the realms of heaven. Through the Damascus event he realized that the Christ had entered into the earth's aura and now lived within it. This is the significant aspect. It is also the reason why around the time when Christianity was founded, many individuals said something that sounds very strange today. Quote, Christ is the true Lucifer. Close quote. They realized that when people who rightly understood human evolution looked up into the higher worlds in the past, they had to connect with the serpent. After the mystery of Golgotha, however, the spirit who overcomes the serpent came down and became lord of the earth. All this is connected with the whole of human evolution. What is the significance of ancient Judaism being in opposition, as it were, to the astral religions of surrounding nations, religions where clouds, lightning, and thunder were seen as symbols of the divine. It means that the human soul had to learn to experience the I as something that no longer received the revelations of the Spirit through the writing in the stars and through lightning and thunder, but received them in the Spirit and through the Spirit itself. Before, people who truly wanted to look up to the Christ could only do so the way Zarathustra did, looking up to what we may call the physical vessel of the Christ, Ahura Mazda. People were able to look up to the physical sun and its effects and know the Christ lives in it. But through the mystery of Golgotha, the Christ was removed from the physical vessel of the sun's actions like a seed from its pod, as it were, and became the spiritual sun that penetrates the earth's aura. The people who venerated Yahweh or Jehovah may be said to have prepared the way for him before he came to penetrate the earth's aura. And the highly significant words spoken by John the Baptist must be understood in this way. Then the mystery of Golgotha was in preparation. In the process, I am going to use more abstract terms at this point, 
we will be able to consider it in more real terms later, Christ Jesus and John the Baptist may be said to have confronted each other. Considering what has just been said about John the Baptist, we can see why this was a confrontation. In John the Baptist, Christ Jesus confronted someone who may be said to have understood better than anyone what it means to venerate the earth's spirit. Where did the capacity to venerate the earth's spirit in the right way come from? Within Judaism and also elsewhere, for others were also encouraged to do so to a greater or lesser extent, but always through the mysteries. Before the mystery of Golgotha, such a capacity was connected with physical heredity, as we may call it, which is an earth law. What I am going to say next will seem utter foolishness to modern scientists, yet it may be the foolishness of someone, quote, foolish in the world, but wise with God, close quote. Before the mystery of Golgotha, the ability to perceive higher things, depended in a way on hereditary conditions. Human evolution progressed when insight, gained through mental images, became independent of human heredity. In the ancient mysteries, it was therefore often right for a son to follow his father in serving the mysteries. It is important to note that at the time of the mystery of Golgotha, higher insight ceased to depend on purely physical conditions. It became something entirely for the soul as humanity progressed. The inmost part of the human soul was no longer dependent on physical heredity. How was it possible for human beings to keep their inner life intact in spite of this? Please consider the full significance of the fact that the core of the inner life, the gaining of higher insight, became a matter purely for the soul, and people could no longer inherit such faculties from their forebearers. I am sure many people today would still like to inherit a capacity for higher insight from their forebearers, but it cannot be done. We can see that. Goethe's abilities certainly did not pass on to his descendants, and the same holds true for other people. What would have happened with those faculties if they had not gained support from something else, receiving a spiritual impulse? They would have become derelict. Human beings would have had to wait for their earthly environment to provide anything that might illumine their minds, depending on their karmic situation. They would not have been able to appreciate this very much, however, and would have been glad to leave the earth again as soon as possible, since they could not acquire faculties of any value there. Buddha made people very much aware of this. He taught them to turn away from everything perceived with the senses. The Christ now made himself felt in Jesus of Nazareth as the principle of which Christ Jesus had been able to say at the baptism in the Jordan, quote, Something has come down into me to quicken the eye. Close quote. From then on, human souls would hold contents that came from beyond this earth and were not merely inherited. Before 
Everything people were able to know was hereditary, passing from generation to generation under physical conditions. The last individual who had still been able to develop higher faculties on the basis of heredity had been John the Baptist. Quote, Not one among those born of women is greater than John the Baptist, close quote. Christ Jesus said of him. He was referring to the fact that the old times differ from the new. In the past it had been right to say, quote, Seeking that which will guide me to the heights of humanity, so that it may live in my heart, I remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abilities have come to me from them through heredity that can attain to the highest in man. Today those abilities come, must come from beyond the, this earth. We must no longer look merely to the earth and find the earth's God in the Christ, but have to be aware in our souls that the Christ comes from the heavens. This is what Christ Jesus was referring to when he spoke of John the Baptist as one of the greatest, quote, born of women, close quote, that is, people who have abilities that can be directly inherited. This answers a question that may be very important for our age. At the time when the third post-Atlantean period began to show itself again in our fifth civilization, I have often spoken of this, people were once again turning to things which to earthly human beings may appear to be beyond this earth. But people were unable to find in this resurrected astral religion what the ancient Egyptians or Chaldeans had found in their astral religion. It now had to be the kind of inner experience one individual had known who truly had the right to speak of these things. It was in 1607 that someone wrote the following, which I am quoting from a work published in 1905, quote, and it's a long quote, by a man named Günther on Kepler and his theology, quote, A magnificent, wonderful harmony exists throughout creation, both in the sphere of the senses and beyond, in ideas and in objects, in the realm of nature and that of grace. This harmony is active in the objects themselves and in their relationships to each other. The greatest harmony is God, and He has impressed inner harmony on all souls as His image. Numbers, configurations, the heavenly bodies and nature altogether are in harmony with certain secrets of the Christian religion. Thus, for example, three objects are at rest in the universe, the sun, the fixed stars, and the intermedium. Everything else is mobile. And so we have Father, Son, and Spirit in the one God. The sphere is also a trinity. The Father is the center, the Son the surface, the Spirit the equal distance between center and surface, the radius. And there are other secrets too. Without spirits and souls there would be no harmony everywhere. The harmonious predispositions in human souls are infinitely many. The whole earth is ensouled, and this creates the great harmony that exists both on earth and between it and the stars. This soul is active throughout the earth's body, but has its seat in a particular place, excuse me, seat in a particular part, 
just as the human soul has its seat in the heart. From there its influence arises as from a focus or wellspring, going out into the ocean and the earth's atmosphere. Hence the sympathy which exists between earth and stars, hence the regular natural effects. That the earth truly has a soul is most clearly evident from observation of the weather and the aspects it regularly produces. Under certain aspects and constellations the air always grows restless. If there are none, or if there are more or less short if they are more or less short lived, it remains calm. Kepler also discussed these and similar ideas in his book Harmonices Mundi. The following passage may serve as an example. Subquote, the globe will be a body like that of an animal, and what in the animal is the soul will be the natura sublunaris of the earth, exciting weather conditions in the presence of aspects. This is not contradicted by the fact that the excitation of weather conditions does not always coincide exactly with the aspects. Sometimes the earth appears to be sluggish, sometimes as if excited, so that vapors continue to be exhaled even without the presence of aspects. It is not as obedient a creature as a dog, but more like a bull or elephant, slow to anger, but all the more violent once aroused. Close subquote from Libri 4, chapter 7. Continue, long quote. These and countless other changes and phenomena occurring in and on the earth are so regular and measured that they cannot be ascribed to a blind cause. The planets themselves do not know anything about the angles their rays form on earth, and therefore the earth must have a soul. Again, that was a sub-quote. No, that was the end of uh, a quote, and then Steiner says, He then stated in his own way, continue quote the earth is an animal you will perceive it in it everything analogous to the parts of an animal body plants and trees are its hair metals its veins the sea water its fluids the earth has creative powers a kind of imagination movement certain diseases and ebb and flood are the breathing of animals the earth's soul appears to be a kind of flame hence the warmth below ground and hence no procreation without warmth. A certain image of the zodiac and the whole firmament has been impressed in the earth's soul by God. Close quote again. This is the bond between heaven and earth, the cause of sympathy between heaven and earth. The images of all its movements and functions have been implanted into it by God the Creator. Uh, excuse me, but I still think this is a, a quote although the quote signs are confusing. So yes, this is still a quote. This is the bond between heaven and earth, the cause of sympathy between heaven and earth. The images of all its movements and functions have been implanted into it by God the Creator. The soul is the center of the earth. It sends out configurations or off-prints of itself in all directions and in this way is sentient of all changes in harmony and all objects outside it. As with the earth's soul, so with the human soul. All mathematical ideas and proofs, for example, the soul creates out of itself, otherwise it could not have such a high degree of certainty and definition. 
The planets and their aspects have an influence on the powers of the human soul. They excite emotional responses and passions of all kinds, and therefore often the most terrible acts and occasions. They influence the conception of birth, and therefore the temperament and character of a person, with a great part of astrology based on this. It is probable that not only light and heat spread from the sun to the whole universe, but that it is also the center and seat of the pure intellect and the source of harmony for the whole universe, and all planets are ensouled. Close quote. To a seventeenth-century mind, therefore, as I said, these words were written in 1607, the approach to higher worlds took this particular form. We can also see from these words that the approach is wholly Christian. It was, of course, a deep mind that generated the words I have just read to you. The influence of the relationship between the human soul and the divine principle, which is active throughout the world, went very deep down indeed. And the same individual whose thoughts on the earth's soul we have just heard also wrote the beautiful words, quote, I believe this is uh, mostly Kepler, quote, hymn to God, creator of the world, eternal power. Through the whole of space your praise resounds. It sounds through heaven and earth. The very infant babbling repeats the voice. It proclaims that the blasphemer shall be silent and your praise be heard forever. Great artist creating the world, I marvel at the work of your hands based on ingenious forms. And at the center the sun, the giver of light and life restraining the earth and guiding it according to sacred law, to take its diver's course. I see the toiling moon and stars scattered in immeasurably vast spaces. Lord of the world, power eternal. Through all worlds your immeasurable glory wings on pinions of light. We see even more deeply into his soul when we read the words, quote, If now you may behold images in the mirror, yet once were meant to know their true essence, why then, I, E-Y-E, do you neglect to take reality, so much more precious and not mere outer glory? If fragmentary knowledge proves such a delight to you, how blessed will it be to see the whole? Dare, O soul, to let go of the lesser, quickly to gain the eternally great. If life here means to die each day and death is the wellspring of life, why, human soul, do you take time to die and be reborn to greet the light? Whose words are these and those about the earth's soul? They are the words of the man who provided the foundation for the whole of modern astronomy and without whom we would not have our present-day astronomy, Johannes Kepler. He was someone whom every monist would praise, yet their attention would also be drawn to the above words written by him. Otherwise all talk about Johannes Kepler is no more than, well, I won't go into it. Kepler's words are an early indication of what looking up to the stars must become again, the new way of reading the writing of the stars, which we are attempting in our science and philosophy of the spirit. We now find the answer to the question posed at the beginning of today's lecture. 
How can we come closer to the Christ impulse? How can we understand the Christ? How do we find the right relationship to Him so that we may say we are truly taking up the Christ impulse? By learning to look up to the Christ with the ardor and depth of heart that lived in the ancient Hebrews when they said, quote, I look up to Abraham the father, close quote, that is, to the line of physical heredity, to Father Abraham, quote, when I want to speak of the ground and origin of the most precious element in my soul, close quote. Today we must find the same depth of soul and inner mood. As we look up to what comes from the heights of the Spirit, to quicken us in the Spirit, to the Christ. If we ascribe all our abilities, everything we are able to do that makes us truly human beings, not to any earthly power, but to the Christ, we shall gain a living relationship to the Christ. Quote, do you delight in some ability, however ordinary, that makes you a human being? Where does it come from? Close quote. From the Christ. The ancient Hebrews would speak of returning to their father Abraham when they died, and this had deep significance. Today we can grasp the meaning of our time, the time after the mystery of Golgotha, if we add to those ancient words, out of the God we are born, words which for us take the place of the old return to father Abraham, quote, in Christ we die, close quote. If we understand the mystery of Golgotha, we gain a living relationship to the Christ. We need that relationship, just as in ancient Hebrew times people had a living relationship to the God who was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That relationship came to expression in the words in which everyone acknowledged, I return to Father Abraham when I die. The people who live after the mystery of Golgotha have to acknowledge in Christ we die. The end of Lecture 10